According to a new survey by T. Rowe Price, Americans intend to spend $422 per child this Christmas. Now think about that. Think that is every single child in all of America, every child, all put together, and the median amount spent is $422. 17 children in here just turned to their parent and said, please tell me I'm getting that much. Um, Kids, uh, at the risk of disappointing you, I must tell you I sincerely hope not. At least not if that amount was put on credit cards that can't be immediately paid off. I want you to look at these numbers from last Christmas. SunTrust Bank uh, did this survey last Christmas. They found that the Americans who added debt in December last year, of the Americans who added debt for Christmas, they added an average of $986 of debt for Christmas. 52% of that went on credit cards. By the way, only 20% of those were paid off in two months. Uh, 30% on store cards, 8% on personal loans, 6% on a payday or title loan, and 4% came out of home equity or some other kind of retirement situation. Now, don't misunderstand. There is absolutely no problem with spending money to celebrate the Lord. It's a very good thing. In fact, remember what God did? He commanded Israel in the law, commanded them to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles every year. And at that great feast... Do you know what they were commanded to do? God said that every Israelite was to spend at least 10% of his or her annual income on gifts and feasting over that week of the feast. 10% of their annual income on giving gifts and feasting. But that represented money they already had, not debt. We, by contrast, go into debt just for a holiday. And let's, let's be honest. Our indebted overspending has precious little to do with celebrating the birth of our Lord, right? It has much more to do with a cultural pressure that is sometimes called no-limits living. The truth is, we feel like losers when we have to say no to anything. So most of us don't. In their annual holiday spending survey, SunTrust Bank uh, found, and I quote, 43% feel pressured to spend more than they can afford this season. T. Rowe Price added this. Last January, 62% of parents agreed with this statement. I spent more for my kids over the holidays than I should have. Making matters worse, roughly 50% used credit cards, 9% dipped into their emergency funds, and 7% even tapped their retirement accounts to bring extra cheer from the North Pole. We hate limits. And beyond all this financial mess, we humans are also universally bothered by time and space restrictions, aren't we? We want to spend, and we want to do it immediately. People resent having to wait in lines. We, we, are, we are very resentful when we can't get immediate responses from our Internet connection, right? It's going to space, people. And Anyway, we, we, we hate these restrictions. We desperately want to be limitless, right? Now, because of this no-limits living, the hero of our modern Christmas has become a highly stylized superhero that we call Santa Claus. He has no limits. Santa can know everything. He can make unlimited toys. Santa has no time or space restrictions, right? He can ride through the air on Christmas Eve, getting to every home in the world nearly instantaneously. Basically, we have made Santa Claus into a demigod with no limits, the exact opposite of the real Lord Jesus who accepted massive limits to institute Christmas. More on that in a moment. Now, please, don't misunderstand. We should actually enjoy Santa. We should. We should enjoy Santa as there are many positives about Santa, even in our modern renditions. But I think it very likely that the real St. Nicholas, who was from Myra in Asia Minor, a Roman Christian, he would be physically ill over our Santa Claus. I think he would especially be interested in the why. 
Why in the world did human societies warp the real St. Nicholas of Myra and turn him into a superhuman demigod who enjoys soft drinks? Why do we do that? <laughs> because human beings despise limits. We desperately, we are desperately insecure about our natural restrictions, and it has been that way for a long, long, long time. You see, from near the very beginning, humanity tried to erase any limits at all. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. First book of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Let's read verses 4 through 6. Chapter 3, verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He spoke it just like that, by the way. Actually, you know, he probably spoke in a clipped British accent. Um, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. In your worship notes uh, that you got when you came in, open those up. You'll see there that we title this, Adam and Eve Try to Erase Human Limits. Adam and Eve Try to Erase Human Limits. That's the big idea here. Adam and Eve desired to be like God Almighty. Therefore, they violated God's command to avoid that tree. Instead, they ate of it. God had granted them his very presence, but they desired to be limitless, just like him. Look at verse 5. That, that's why the serpent used the hook line, you will be like God. That's why verse 6 shows Eve desiring things she already had. God had granted them wisdom, his delightful perfection. He had given them amazingly abundant food. But they desired, listen, they desired to be the providers of such things, not the recipients of them. So, so Eve in verse 6 is wanting things that she doesn't need. She doesn't need any more food or beauty or wisdom. She just wanted all that stuff on her terms. She wanted to erase the limitations of, no longer, of not being the boss of course, that didn't work out very well, did it? No longer could they enjoy God's presence. They were kicked out of the garden because God's perfection could not accept the presence of human sinfulness. Otherwise, he would no longer be holy. And look at verse 7. Verse 7. Take a look at that. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Itchy. Uh, Moses' wordplay here is brilliant. Look at this. This is just brilliant, Okay. Um, the word which was, the, the, that which was supposedly delightful to the eye, you see that in verse 6? It actually makes their eyes see something very unpleasant in verse 7. There's a really witty parallel with look at and eyes open that shows how that which was advertised as pleasant actually is embarrassing. And there's another layer of wit. The word we translate delightful in verse 6 is ta'ova, ta'ova. The word fig in verse 7 is a rhyme, te'ena, ta'ova te'ena. The rhyme draws attention to the truth that what is pleasing when we receive it from God becomes an itchy poor covering when we try to be God's. What is pleasing when we receive it from God becomes an itchy poor covering when we try to be God's. And what follows are the negative after effects that reek with with pain and horror, death, betrayal, jealousy, despair. Over and over again, people keep proving the sin of our first parents is passed on to every single person. Uh, this guy with the Semitic name of Nimrod, which means rebel, uh, he tried to become great on his own, being his own god, by building the first massive city. Later, the ruins of that city were built on uh, uh, to become the infamous Tower of Babel, where humans once again tried to outreach God. Now, of course, you are wondering, in that angry elf voice that you like to use, this is all ancient history. How does this show up in my life today? Thank you so much for asking, Angry Elf. That's a great question. The negative after effects are still resounding through all of our lives now. For example, raise your hand if 
you have ever had a toddler tell you no over something completely ridiculous. Okay, yeah, that's the effect of sin right there. Here's an actual conversation sent to me by a very wise mom. She wrote me and said, Pastor Wayne, here is what I observed in our home this evening. They have a four-year-old son. He's sitting on the couch next to his dad, and he says to daddy in a very pouty voice, I'm cold. Now, dad is reading on the couch with a blanket across his lap, and he says, okay, buddy, here, have some of my blanket. No. Why not? I don't want to. Now, at this point, she writes, at this point, dad is wildly looking at me, mom, trying to get help and getting none. And, uh, and he says, um, do you want another blanket instead? No. Is there something you do want that will help? I want to be the one in charge of the blanket. I want to be the boss of the whole world. <laughs> and then mom added this note. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. She said, Wayne, surely anyone who knows children understands the effects of sin. That scene was it in a nutshell. We all want to be the boss of the whole world. So, even when we do something noble, like giving, how do we do it? We want to do it like Santa Claus, not like Jesus. We want to give like the all-powerful boss of the world, not like the helpless baby boy born in Bethlehem. Okay, I promised we'd get back to Lord Jesus. Look at the headline atop the right side of our notes. Jesus accepts humanity. Jesus accepts humanity, including its limits. In Philippians chapter 2, we have a very important theological truth laid out for us. In this passage, we get a glimpse of Jesus' acceptance of limits in order to come to earth as the human Messiah. Would you read it with me, please? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, you read the underlined text. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he, I love this phraseology, instead he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Thank you. Theologians call this the kenosis of Christ. It's a, it's a term from a Greek word that means self-emptying. Jesus was and is fully human. For his sojourn on earth, God the Son emptied himself of his divine privileges. That means that the one who had the full power and authority of God chose to limit himself to a little human body. As as Robin Williams' genie declared, phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space, right? And that self-surrender changes everything for all of us who are on this road of life with him. Last week, speaking of road, last week I was driving down El Dorado, one of the main east-west thoroughfares in our town. I was, uh, I was in the middle lane. Eventually, I needed to get over to turn left. About a mile before my turn, I clicked on my, my left turn indicator. Now, I was driving about the speed limit, maybe, maybe a tick above the speed limit, okay? As soon as I turned on that blinker, the lady in the left lane, 30 feet back from me, sped up. She sped up. She got to where she was going at least 10 miles an hour over the speed limit because she desperately did not want me to impede her life. And guess what? The lady behind her sped up too. And the guy behind her sped up as well. They all see the flashing light, and they all just went past. Finally, the fourth person, the fourth car, was going the normal speed limit and signaled like this for me to come over. I didn't believe her at first after what I had experienced. But eventually, I moved over. Now, let me just ask you, which of those drivers best resembles Jesus? The ones who sped up to cut me off or the one who, who gave up her privilege to make room for me? Which one resembled Jesus? The one who gave up. By the way, which driver are you? Oh, that is much too convicting. Forget that. Let's talk about Jesus. Philippians 2, 
Philippians 2 says that God the Son's self-emptying is ultimately seen in the cross. You talk about accepting limits. He let himself literally be nailed in place. It doesn't get more limiting than that. He did it because through the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. That's how he made a way for those who trust him to merge into the family of God. Pastor Erwin Lutzer puts it really nicely. He says this, We should be grateful that those who preceded us in the history of the church insisted that we believe in the Christ who is God and human. In his own person, he unites God and man. In his death, he reconciles man to God. To make room for us in God's family, Jesus accepts humanity, including the limits. Now, the Gospels, those four books that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they especially display that limitation because in the Gospels we learn that Jesus enters as a displaced human infant, the ultimate in insecurity. Listen to Luke, Luke chapter 2, verse 6. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. These words are so familiar, they can lose their import. Jesus didn't just come to earth. He came as one who was temporarily homeless. He could and should have had any palace in the world, but Messiah was born in the undersection of a caravansary where the animals were kept, not up top where the human beings stayed. Because of the census crowds, there wasn't room up top. It doesn't get much more displaced than that, does it? Look, he who is sovereign God chose to be born in what amounts to the garage of a Motel 6, okay? And obviously, this was done on purpose. Jesus went out of his way to show that he was embracing limits and not merely the normal limits of humanity, but restrictions that would make people recoil. Speaking of humanity, Jesus was born as fully human as well. Not just displaced, he was human. We know this from prophecy, we know it from scripture, and we know it, this is just logic, because Jesus can obviously be killed. He's human. Look, look, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. After they, the Magi, were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up! Take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. Jesus is fully human. That's why they had to flee to Egypt. This led some very talented artists to celebrate, especially during the early Reformation. For example, uh, in 1620, Gerard von Honthorst, he painted this amazing picture. It's called The Adoration of the Child. Now, I want you to look at it for a moment. Notice how the boy shepherds are observing, and they are smiling with joy. Look at the joy on their faces, and they're also in awe. Why? Follow their gaze. Follow their gaze. What are they looking at? They are enchanted with his masculinity. And this isn't creepy. It's not inappropriate. They are looking at the one that angels announced as Messiah, and they're marveling that he is just like they. He's a boy, just like them. People were so moved by Gerard's painting. He did another one uh, two years later, and he finished it on the 25th of December, which is a nice touch. And uh, this exquisite piece is called Adoration of the Shepherds. Now, this time, he made the shepherds older, but, but they still have the same point. They are astounded with the biblical truth that Jesus is wholly human. Notice the laughter in this painting. There is such good news here, they cannot help but rejoice. Jesus, God the Son, is a displaced human baby. The ultimate in insecurity can't even take care of himself. Tracy Bush of our pulpit team sent me a great quote about this. Um, it's from Warren Wiersbe. He writes, as he often did in Israel's history, God began to solve the problem by sending a baby. 
Babies are God's announcement that he knows the need, cares about his people, and is at work on their behalf. The arrival of a baby ushers in new life and a new beginning. Babies are signposts to the future, and their conception and birth is a miracle that only God can do. To make the event even greater, God sometimes selects barren women to be the mothers. That's when he sent Isaac to Sarah, Jacob and Esau to Rebekah, and Joseph to Rachel, close quote. Of course, in this case, the triune God showed off even more dramatically, right? He caused a virgin to be with child. And in a way that no one had ever done before or could ever do again, Jesus brings new life from God. As, as we put it in your notes, Jesus redeems humanity, exalting us past our limits. He is so secure that he accepts the restrictions of humanity, and then he does what we can't do. He securely lifts us past our constraints. This is awesome. Scripture shows three ways Jesus exalts us beyond fallen human limitations. First, he offers us trustworthy leadership. Trustworthy leadership is the most precious commodity on this earth. Leaders are fallen, like all humans not named Jesus, and throughout history most leaders have been despots, right? Even on the rare occasions that people have been allowed to choose their own leaders, we often have to choose between multiple evils, don't we? By contrast, Jesus gives us the edification, the encouragement, the example to follow the only perfect leader. Look, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore... Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and, and find grace to help us at the proper time. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who leads his people as a kingdom of priests. And when we need help doing our job as priests, we need only turn to him. He was tested in every way a person can be. Look, the critical Greek verb here is a form of perazo, word we've looked at before that we render tested or tried in the Bible. It's a really important idea. It appears all throughout the Bible, including well-known passages like the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so let's practice saying it again, perazo, on the count of three. One, two, three, perazo. It's a sneaky word. It, it means to, to push or trap someone. Uh, the, the tests that humans face are nasty snares that are set by this fallen world system or by our own flesh or by the devil. There is unescapable testing on this earth. Jesus was tested. We who trust him will be tested as well. That's why we who follow him ask him to lead us. We trust him knowing that nothing we face is beyond his experience. When we ask him to lead us, we're recognizing that he knows all the perosmos. He, he knows all the traps. He alone can guide us past them. Th think of it like this. Think of it like this. Suppose that you're a, uh, a captain in the military, okay? And, and you've got your choice of cavalry scouts to lead your company uh, through an area. By the way, the area that you've got to go through is known to be laced with booby traps. Lots of parasmos there, lots of traps, okay? So you get to choose which scout you want to lead your company. Here's your choice. You could choose this guy. He's a 19-year-old band-new recruit who has never seen combat. Or this 44-year-old grizzled veteran of many wars. Which one do you choose? Which one? Veter Why? Yeah, because he's alive. That's right. He's alive. He's obviously good at overcoming traps. That's why he's still alive. In a similar way, Jesus has overcome all the parasmos of this life. He's alive. He is the one we look to for guidance, boldly approaching him in our need. It's a running theme through the book of Hebrews. Look, this is so cool. Hebrews 12 picks up the idea and says this. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on whom, everybody? Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith. That word source is really cool in the Greek. Uh, the Greek word is archagon. 
uh, hagon, um, I think trailblazer is probably the, the best rendering of this word. We follow Jesus, keeping our eyes on him because he's the only one who blazes a right and safe trail. Uh, writing about Archegon in a different passage, my friend Stephen Gere gives us a really great summary. Look what uh, Stephen says. Uh, Jesus is the originator, the pioneer, the life, the source, the champion, the very author of life. Jesus was the template for a perfect humanity. Jesus gives us a real leader. All God's people said? Amen. He also offers us resurrection life. That's the second way that Jesus redeems humanity, exalting us past our limits. He gives us resurrection life. We can't earn that. We cannot earn our way to God. We don't have to be and can't be superhuman. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Paul's reasoning, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by what, everyone? By grace. The text goes on to say that you are made right before God by His grace through your faith in Jesus. That, that trust in Messiah undoes the effect of Adam's fall. It makes us alive with the Messiah. We were dead. Do you see that? Not, not mostly dead, Miracle Max. In our trespasses and sin, we were, we were separated from God. It is the real death which came to even Adam and all mankind. The serpent lied. Oh, we died all right. An eternal ongoing death apart from life in God. But, look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 and thank God for big butts. But, God loved us, right? We are saved by grace. Tell me, if you could have any superhero power, what would you have? Mm-hmm. What would it be? I'm not, not going to pick on you. just want to have fun with you. Uh, raise your hand and tell me some superhero power. If you could, which one would you have? Yeah, what would it be, Jen? Eat anything, I want to never gain weight. Right, that's, that's, that's a good one. I like that. I would have that one. Yes. Flight. Flight, you would fly? Yeah, awesome. How about you? What would it be? Elastability, Mr. Fantastic. Yes, ma'am, what would it be? What? Invisibility. Oh, Violet, that would be awesome. Yes, sir. Super speed, that would be mine. I want to be the Flash. Yeah, see, I just went around the whole auditorium. Yeah. How about you? What would it? Shape shift. Actually, you're your mother right now. And you, yeah, that's cool. All right, good. You kind of do look like your mother. It works. All right. Um, <clears throat> that's cool. Thank you. Um, superheroes are fun. By the way, do you know the very first ones were invented by Christians? The very first superhero to ever appear in literature was by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, but here's, here's, look at the timeline. Let me tell you something I find very intriguing about superhero powers. Superhero powers are never a thing. Never a thing. All of human history, they are never ever a thing until the mid-19th century, and suddenly they burst on the scene. Never. No superhero power. It's just not even an idea until the mid-19th century. Why is that? Why did the Victorian era bring us our first superheroes? I think it's for the same reason that that period began the serious warping of St. Nicholas, because that's when atheism was taking hold in many Western minds for the first time. It was, it was, atheism was morphing from the odd deism of the Enlightenment. Now think about it, think about it. If you try to pretend that there's no God, that requires an immense amount of work and faith. As C.S. Lewis said, you've got to be careful about everything you read, everything you see, because there are chinks in your armor all the time. 
You really have to work hard to have enough faith to be an atheist. So it helps to have distractions so, so that one doesn't have to recognize the battle of continuing to work up such faith. And the most effective distractions of all, this is brilliant, most effective distractions are the ones that take on the limitless attributes of God and yet require no trust in Him. They're illusions that allow us to vicariously pretend to live. Listen, pretend heroes are fine, but not if one misses out on the real resurrection life that is found only in Jesus, the God-man. Superheroes are cool. Santa Claus is cool unless they cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus. Amen? We who do trust Christ are said by God to be in Jesus. That means that we are included in the resurrection life that He alone can provide. No mere superhero can do that. We're also included in His eternal home because He offers us a permanently safe place, which is the ultimate answer to our insecurity. Look, look John chapter 14, Jesus speaks in the upper room. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I told you Jesus exalts us past human limits. No fallen human can exist with holy God. No human can reach to God. We are outside the garden, unable to get back in. Yet thanks to Jesus' imputed righteousness in those who trust him, people can live forever with God. But God allows us to live in his house Mansions of the rich and famous are quite popular. Uh, that's why millions of people watch cribs and, and tour Biltmore House and, and uh, British castles. But cool as those are, and they are fun, they are nothing compared to the home you have waiting for you, Christian. No comparison. Bill Gates' security system cannot hold a candle to thousands of angelic warriors. The inaccessibility of Neue Schwanstein is nothing compared to the other plane of heaven. Your eternal place is permanent. It is secure. Remember, when Christians pass, we don't become angels. We don't become gods. We become glorified humans. That means that like Jesus, we retain our humanity after the resurrection. The, the glorification that removes the presence of sin does not remove our humanity. And that, friends, is the ultimate example of how Jesus exalts us past human restrictions. Therefore, because of Jesus, we can live differently. We can my old teaching partner, Dan Russ, uh, put it this way. Dr. Russ said, we are being redeemed and will live for eternity as redeemed human beings, not mere transcendent souls or pious spirits. So, get started now through Christ to discover how to be a finite, embodied reflection of God's grace even in a sinful world. Close quote. Live differently. I see four ways to live differently because of Jesus' willful acceptance of limitations. First, First, we can and must ourselves accept the limits of humanity now. Listen carefully. Listen very carefully. You cannot be just whatever you wish. That is a lie. Okay? We cannot flap our arms and fly. You can try all day for a hundred years. You are still never going to turn into a bird. We can't make up some gender that we desire because of how we feel at the time. That is absurd. It is frankly dangerous. Neither can we just spend whatever we desire. Remember the, the Christmas spending survey by T. Rowe Price that we discussed at the start at the very end of their, uh, of their article. One of their financial planners, uh, Stuart Ritter, said this at the end of their report. Our long-term goals, such as retirement savings and having an emergency fund, should always take priority over anything that is presented with a bow and purchased during a Black Friday sale. Kids will always have long wish lists, and it's good for them to know there isn't enough money in the family budget to cover everything. 
Challenging them to prioritize their wants and make trade-offs is essential to helping them develop critical financial capabilities. Close quote. Look at that last clause. Develop. Development is always connected to limits. Always. Please don't miss that. If you always get a trophy for nothing, you won't develop. If you believe that your opinion is de facto reality, you arrest your development. This happens because when a person doesn't see very clearly the reality of limits, he or she will miss their need. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. If I assume that whatever direction I go is correct, then I don't know I'm really lost. And thus I will reject what I need most, which is Jesus' offer of secure salvation. Remember, remember Moses' clever rhyme in, in Genesis 3, 6, and 7, Ta'ava and Te'ana. They draw attention to the truth that what is pleasing when we receive it from God, when we know we're lost and we know we need Him, that becomes a very poor covering. That same thing becomes a very poor covering when we try to be God's. Therefore, trust the limitless God who loves you. Second way in which Jesus' incarnation changes us, we trust God's love. Look again, Ephesians chapter 2. This time read it with me, would you please? Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in trespasses, You are saved by grace. Amen. Only God can reach across the chasm of death that separates us from Him. And amazingly, He does. He loves us so much that Jesus surrendered all those divine privileges. Unlike our made-up TV shows, Jesus is a real person. And unlike our stories, He really is limitless. He is ultimate cosmic power in itty-bitty living space. Trust Him. We can live differently especially because we know that a permanent place is being made just for Christians. Remember Jesus' incredible promise in that upper room that he would have a place for us in his father's house? Wow! My best buddy in high school lived in a literal mansion. Seriously, it, it, it had many, many massive rooms. I think it had at least seven fireplaces, and I spent a lot of time in that house. In fact, I spent so much time in that house, they called the upstairs game room Wayne's Place. Um, But it wasn't really my permanent place. In fact, it's no longer their place either. None of that family lives there anymore. And it won't be too long before that house completely decays. That's what happens to buildings on this earth. By contrast, the dwelling being made in God's house is everlasting. It is yours, Christian, and it will never, ever decay. Therefore, you and I can be secure. We can even be secure enough to think of others. That's our fourth way to live differently. Think of others before self. That's what Jesus did when he set aside his rights. He thought of us first. Because of him, you and I can live sacrificially and wisely for things that are eternal, not just for stuff that's fading away on earth. We can let the other car into our lane, right? I can give up the close parking space and just walk farther. Why? Because I don't need anything. I don't need anything. I have all I could ever possibly need in Jesus. Secure in Him, I can imitate Him and sacrifice for others. Pray with me about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we will, we will be changed by the limits of Jesus. That because of the limitations you accepted, we we can follow you in a genuine limitless life, one that allows me to see other people and to be conscious of them and their needs. As Philippians 2 says it, not only look out for the needs of myself. This isn't natural to us, 
We need your power to do it, and we thank you that you've provided that resurrection power in Jesus. Please change us. And by the way, Lord, speaking of change, I pray for, for uh, a couple of other groups of people. I pray for the people that, that are studying with me today that are believers in Jesus, but they, they don't really have security. Uh, they don't have that assurance of, of their salvation, of being justified of an a certain glory. Lord, please write on their heart what you said, Jesus. I have them in my hand, and no one shall take them from me. Please let them find security in you. It's the only place it can be found. And Lord, I pray for anyone who does not trust Jesus as Savior. They, they, they have no security because they don't believe on you. The security they have is that pretended made-up kind, the kind that, that, uh, that takes a lot of human effort. It's all about us. It's all about being centered. It's all about, uh, it's all about having the right formula, the right religion, and it's hogwash because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And I pray you open their eyes and draw them to you, Lord. Please. Listen, you who are not believers in Jesus, listen very carefully. God loves you. No, you don't deserve it. When you try and be your own God, it's just an itchy, poor covering. But God made a way for you that if you receive from Him, it brings life. You see, Jesus came to this earth and He died on the cross. Let Himself be in the ultimate limitation to pay for your sin and mine. And then He rose from the dead so that everybody who trusts Him could follow Him in everlasting life everlasting secure life. Trust Him right now. You, talk to God who loves you and tell Him, I trust Jesus. I recognize I'm a sinner. I, I, I turn from that. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I turn to you and thank you for that amazing conjunction in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But you, rich in mercy, made a way for me. I trust you and receive Jesus as my Savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Everybody else is still praying. Their eyes are closed. You raise your hand look up at me. Good. All right. Father, thank you. I, I pray for these believers in Christ, new and old. And I pray that you will make us so secure that we can live differently. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.